0: Sarah Haggy, cultural critic, Scamfluencer's podcast co-host, and writer for the internet. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Today on the show, the Toronto Star of 2022, harking back to the Maclean's of 2006 or so, with its uh, attitudes towards, you'll see. And staying on the Toronto Star, more drama. But on the business side of things. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and for Jesse, welcome to Shortcuts where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Roslyn Zamphir, David Druin, Avi Gottlieb, Barrette LaFortune, Martin Adelar, Bronwyn Geddes, Emory Hartley, and Matt. My name is Matt, and I'm a media teacher in the Greater Toronto Area. Canada Land has been a weekly companion on my commute to school for a number of years. On more than one occasion, it has sparked an interesting discussion in my classes. Shout out to Commons and the Backbench for providing a critical perspective on Canadian politics. Thank you for everything you do. For more than two decades, Vinay Manon has been an entertainment writer and columnist at the Toronto Star. As of this taping, his most recent three columns are Paris Hilton's Lost Chihuahua has the psychics and pet detectives circling like vultures, The World is Falling Apart but Sure Get Outraged by Chris Pratt's voice in the new Super Mario movie, and Cheetos Moves from Snacks to Inventing Words and Building a Hideous Statue in Alberta, which in print carried the headline, Orange You Glad the Statue is Temporary? He's the winner of a National Newspaper Award for a 2014 profile, Peter Mansbridge, CBC's Anchor in a Storm, and the author of a 2013 Toronto Star e-book titled Rush, An Oral History Uncensored. He also has strong opinions about what women, particularly Muslim women, should and should not wear. Today we'll be talking about that, how the star responded, and what responsibility editors ought to bear, both in terms of their publication and toward the public more broadly. So in a column, uh, with the death of Masa Amini, it's time for Hollywood to fight for Iranian women. That ran online on September 27th and in print the next day. Menin wrote, Women are currently ripping off their hijabs and burning them in the streets of Iran. It's a courageous and beautiful sight. In the east end of our great city, I have strolled past quite a few women in full-on burqas. Honestly, I wince every time. It feels like I'm a passerby to subjugation. These women look like they are in Halloween costumes. I refuse to believe it is their choice. Our fixation with tolerance, and he puts that in quotes, has rendered us blind to what happens in truly intolerant countries. Apologies if this paragraph is offensive, but you can't convince me any woman in any country wants a dress code. Sarah, what was your initial reaction when you saw this, and did you accept his preemptive apology? I didn't accept his
1: preemptive apology because it wasn't an apology. Okay, I had many thoughts when I saw this. To start, I mean, it's a really cruel thing to say, especially in the context of speaking out for Iranian women. The two things don't really have much to do with one another, in my opinion. It's its own issue that deserves its own attention without bringing in what you think is happening here in a way. Mm -hmm. I feel like it kind of, you know, takes away from that. Mm -hmm. Comparing how someone chooses to dress to a Halloween costume and that making you uncomfortable to me is, you know, it's it's disgusting. It's a disgusting thing to say. I'm not saying you have to think like, oh, I want to wear that or I would like if someone wore that. It's not really about that. It's just a matter of respect and respecting a human being's choice to dress as they want. Another thing is it's a fully inaccurate statement, you know, Mm. a very, very small amount of women in Toronto, and particularly in the East End, where what he referred to as a burqa, which is actually a niqab, Mm. which is a face covering some Muslim women choose to wear, Again, it's a very, very small amount of people who do. Not that it should matter, but it's not enough for him to be like, I'm walking down the street and I'm just like, oh, my God, like, what's going on here? Like, I'm sorry. That's it's bullshit. Another thing that I thought about as well was who let this pass in an edit? Which editor read this, edited the piece and kept in that passage, which is quite lengthy. It's not a throwaway remark. It is something that took complete focus of the piece instead of what the piece was supposed to be about. And this is what we're talking about right now. We're not talking about Iranian women and how the entertainment industry should be supporting them. Now we're talking about this guy saying something Islamophobic.
0: Yeah, we'll talk with the editor in a moment. I think I first noticed it when one of the own reporters, Noor Javid, tweeted about it, um, saying, I, I usually don't speak out against my colleagues, but it truly boggles my mind that 20 years after I entered the Canadian media industry, the obsession with how Muslim women dress continues, and 20 years later, the Islamophobic tropes also continue. Sad to see how little has changed. Uh, one thing that has, I think, clearly changed is that more people within newsrooms seem to feel empowered or are empowered to speak out publicly, and partly due to those discussions and complaints within the newsroom, and partly due to the social media outrage, by one o'clock in the afternoon on the 28th, the Star put up a note quasi-retracting those passages, uh, saying, This column was edited to remove a passage about the burqa that did not meet the Star's editorial standards. We regret that it was published in its original form. And they cut a few of the sentences. They modified others. So it was like, for example, instead of saying, Honestly, I wince every time. It feels like I'm a passerby to subjugation. we Reframe to, Honestly, I worry every time that I'm a passerby to subjugation. Or our fixation with tolerance has rendered us blind, et cetera, to I worry that our fixation with tolerance has rendered us blind. And they deleted the Halloween costume mm-hmm. remark. So how much an improvement do you would you say that was, Sarah?
1: I don't think it's a huge improvement. I mean, I get it's his opinion and it's not necessarily something I have to agree with or, you know, a majority of people have to agree with. But it still, to me, is not in line with the point he's trying to make, which is – Supporting these women who are making a choice while also maligning other women who are making their own choices. And it's not good enough. It shouldn't have been published in the first place. But, you know, I understand they're not going to, you know, take out a huge chunk of this person's opinion piece.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe they should. I mean, your first instinct or or one of your first things was to try to say, like, who was the person who edited this? We deserve to know their names because— Clearly, they were okay with this and signed off on it. I was skeptical. As it turns out? But they yes, As it turns out, like I was skeptical because at the Star, there's sometimes there's an inverted, and not generally, but it's something we've seen at the Star and has been written about at the Star, where there's an inverted power dynamic where sometimes the columnists have more power than the editors who edit them. Especially um, a
1: veteran columnist and yeah. someone who's starting out as an editor,
0: I understand that imbalance is probably pretty huge. Yeah, when people, some might feel, yeah, reluctant to push back against season columnists. But as it turns out, it was exactly as you surmised, Sarah, that Star's public editor, Donovan Vincent, weighed in the following week about why those remarks were a violation of the Star standards and the steps they'd be taking to improve their opinion editing process, including requiring that at least two editors view all columns on sensitive moral issues. But uh, he offered some specific insight in a couple of passages. Regarding the Halloween caution. Mennen said that when he passes a woman in sweltering heat who is draped head to toe with only a slit to see through, yes, I am reminded of the fundamental discomforts and identity-stealing nature of Halloween costumes,
1: which also doesn't make any sense. What, are you walking around Halloween thinking like, "Oh man, this is bad"? <laughs> like, I don't understand yeah, that st- point. <laughs> uh, I, uh,
0: and, but the senior editor who handled his column told me, me being Don Vincent, she had the same impression when she read the column and okayed it for publication, which is to say this was, a, in fact, a case of a senior editor reading this and evidently not seeing an issue with it because they, in fact, uh, agreed with that.
1: Yeah, view. and that's my big issue here. You know, that is, to me, the main problem. If for anyone who doesn't write professionally— You know, the relationship between an editor and a writer Mm -hmm. is highly collaborative, if it's a good one. Mm -hmm. And that means, as a writer, you're writing out your ideas, you're trying to make these points, you are trying to get to the thesis of whatever piece you're writing, whatever essay it is. And an editor is someone who pushes back on your ideas, asks you to unpack these ideas, decides what's relevant or not to the greater point you're making, and... To me, a good editor and a good
0: editorial process and a good
1: editorial process would see this and think, How does this fit into this piece? Like, why is this necessary at all in this piece? And I think an editor is very responsible for how a piece is presented. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why it should be a secret who this editor is. They have a public job, they are a known person, they have colleagues that they work with. And now there are a bunch of people who work at the Toronto Star who are probably. Like, OK, I guess this is what my editor thinks. I couldn't imagine working at the Star and—
0: Or even just thinking an editor. An, an editor. Not even knowing yeah, who Yeah, an editor.
1: Yeah. I, I'm not saying this should be known because they should be punished or because I want to shame them or go after them or anything like that. But why shouldn't we know? It's a collaborative process. It's how work is made. Mm-hmm. Editors are very important to the pieces anyone reads in a newspaper, a magazine, or a blog, or whatever— And I don't think it should be a secret at all. I should know who this is. And I tweeted, if anyone knows who this is, can you tell me? And someone did tell me who it was. And it is someone who has a uh, very Mm. senior position and who uh, allegedly has said things at work that fall in line to Mm. this editorial choice. And as a writer, you're kind of thinking, "Okay, I am Canadian. Currently, I mostly work in the United States because— there's more opportunity but you know as a writer as someone who's written for the star is this a publication i can trust as a writer when i see that there is someone in a senior position who ostensibly views me in this negative light like i don't wear a niqab but Mm -hmm. as a muslim woman i don't think it just ends with viewing that specific choice in that way. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't make me feel safe as a person. It wouldn't make me feel respected as a person. And there have been many times in my career where I've seen this in my own life and I've seen people I've worked with or wanted to work with express this kind of, you know, disgust towards me or what I believe or people who are like me. And I think it's a pretty big problem. And I think it's insane to me that we're just not supposed to know who this person with power who says this can be published or this cannot be published. Like, we're just not supposed to know who they are?
0: It's a super interesting question. Um, the Toronto Star's public editor, and I don't believe this started with Donovan Vincent. In the columns, they don't typically name the people that they're writing about or quoting or or, or citing, except for when it's the... You know, obviously, if it's the journalist whose byline is on the piece that's in question, or and they typically have include statements from like the senior most editors of the paper, like the masthead editors. But other than that, the columns tend to not include names, including like comments from within the newsroom, like this offers direct quotes of like, you know, why this is problematic from people in the newsroom. and it also doesn't offer the name of this editor. And it's become sort of standard and accepted. and, why wouldn't you make those names public? And all I can think of is like, you know, if it were an inverted power dynamic, such as a case where we saw with a recent Ellie Tesher column where she gave some really bad victim-blamey advice to a person who was in an abusive relationship and the public editor wrote that basically talked to the editor who was a junior mm-hmm. editor who didn't feel comfortable pushing back. I could see where, you know, you might not want to put that person on the line. Yeah. But yeah.
1: You know, and it's – again, editors are very important. You know, this isn't just Vinay's fault. Mm -hmm. He wrote this. It came from his mind. But a good editor would have pushed back on that. I think it's kind of scary to think that there's this person who said, I let this go through an edit because I do agree with this sentiment, is in charge of what goes in an opinion page or not or what goes into an essay or not when she has colleagues who are Muslim or disagree with this. I don't really see that kind of person being impartial. I think if I were to look at that piece, regardless of whether or not I agreed or disagreed, it does not add to this point at all. It is like a weird slight that comes out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. that doesn't fit, that doesn't lend to a greater point of what this person's trying to convey. And to me, it's like, why push forward that agenda when... You know, we see what happens in Canada to Muslims and to people who are visibly Mm -hmm. Muslim. You know, it was a year and a half ago that three generations of a family were murdered by someone in a car who ran them over because they were Muslim in London, Ontario.
0: And to be clear, Nathaniel Velman hasn't, as of now, pled guilty or been convicted of a murder. But, yeah, I don't think it's in contention that he killed those people.
1: Yeah, and that's the concern he's putting here in this piece is a woman minding her own business, walking down the street, and it makes you uncomfortable. She didn't say anything to you. She didn't do anything. She's not threatening you mm. at all. You know, just in the greater context of what our country is and things that happen to people here, to me, it's just like it's an insane thing to— feature and you know everyone's talking about this piece and it was going you know whatever Canada viral <sighs> and it wasn't because people were like hey what a great point about how Hollywood should be supporting Iranian women mm-hmm. it, that's not what people cared about when they read this and also you know this type of Islamophobia is something that like I have faced in my career and in real life or you know Me speaking out on certain issues or being publicly a certain way has definitely cost me jobs. And it's weird to me that this person could edit something like that and have a powerful position and that's it. Like, it's just kind of like, well, she agreed and we took it out,
0: you know? For the record, from Vincent's column, yeah, Menon said that he's neither racist nor Islamophobic and offered the statement Would a racist or Islamophobe really write a column calling attention to Iranian women uh, who are bravely fighting for their human rights? I a, stand with them.
1: Such a bullshit point. You know, now it's about you can't call me racist or Islamophobic. Well, what you said was Islamophobic and was targeting, uh, A marginalized group. So maybe I can't say, I don't know this man, I can't say full on like, oh, he's a racist or he's an Islamophobe. But that's what his piece conveyed. And that's what I'm going to say. And it's insane to me that it becomes this whole defense of him and his point of views when it's like, no, you said something messed up and you can come back from that from saying like hey I thought about it and yeah it was not an inappropriate thing to say in the context of my piece instead of being like well would an Islamophobe do this like what is that it's so stupid and you know I can't imagine what it would be like to work at this place and to know that that's the kind of thing again that that flies and is totally fine until there's enough public outrage and you know the public editor has to say something. And it was very brave of people who worked at the Star mm-hmm. um, to speak out against it because that's the kind of thing that does get you punished in a lot of cases. Even if it's not officially, you do get a target on your back for saying things like that, and you do get painted as someone who speaks out or who's difficult to work with when you point out that something's messed up as a
0: minority. And I don't know, it's just, it's really gross to me. One of the things I will say is that the Star has actually tried to address one of the issues you raised. Um, a couple of years ago, they appointed Shri Pradkar, who's a, a columnist there, as their internal ombuds for what they described at the time as editorial-related discrimination and bias concerns. So essentially making her the designated point person for whom racialized and other journalists could take concerns that they didn't feel comfortable taking directly to management. That does seem to have gone some way, and the fact that people are more outspoken than they previously may have been even a few years ago, I take as encouraging. But on the flip side, I mean – As Vincent reminds us, you know, in his column where he does cite concerns from people within the newsroom, but then he adds, to be transparent, several readers had praise for men in the comments section under this this column. Some journalists at the Star also had no problems with the column.
1: Of course they had no problem with it, and I don't expect everyone to unanimously understand why something like that is a messed up thing to say. And also, the onus is always on... Someone like Shree or someone like Noor who has to point out, hey, this is messed up. And, again, have that target on their back of being someone who speaks out against an organization and who's racialized. To me, it's just like, you know, I think it's great, but I also don't see it as a solution where you have to kind of put yourself on the line and, again, be framed as someone who's difficult or, you know, I don't know. To me, it's just all gross, and I I do feel really— I feel for people who have to work there and deal with this and, you know, still maintain this level of professionalism when it's hurtful and it's very disappointing.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and better help is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com CanadaLand. Once again, it's BetterHelp.com. along with 5 free travel packs. You'll get a free 1-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com/canadaland. That is drinkag1.com/canadaland. Check it out. Sarah, as you know, on the show, we like to duly note things. Do you have something
0: you'd like to note, Julie?
1: My duly noted today is a show I got to work on that is on CBC Gem called Lido TV. It is created and hosted by Canadian legend Lido Pimienta. And it's a really, really good show. There are six episodes, 50 minutes each. It's a variety show that has been getting a bit of shit lately. Because certain people who confuse regular shampoo Mm. for dog shampoo uh, assumed it was a children's show because there are puppets in it. It is not a children's show. But
0: not inappropriate for children, necessarily. It's not
1: inappropriate for children, but they're not the target demographic. And anyway, it is a fantastic show that is making a lot of people upset because it talks about certain things that a lot of Canadians don't really want to talk about, like feminism or hate or colonialism.
2: A is for apple. Apple, apple, apple. 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 And B is for baby. Baby, baby, baby. 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 And C is for colonialism. (laughs)
1: And it really is something that is truly original and was so fun to work on. And it turned out so well. And um, I think everyone should watch
0: it. It's on CBC Gem now. Duly noted. Well, I was actually I was going to basically do the exact same thing. No. (laughs) Yeah, And I was meant to check in for Lido TV, which played at TIFF, which I guess is your first thing that you wrote playing at TIFF as well in the primetime program and it's on CBC Gem now and parts of it are riff on Pee Wee's Playhouse and other parts seem to be riffing on Z-Way which is a wonderful Showtime series that people should see. One thing I did find interesting about this certain um, person who has in the past confused different dog and non-dog varieties of shampoo is that five years ago you correctly predicted that he would be just fine. After Jonathan (laughs) Kaye left the Walrus uh, amid some controversy. Um, he voluntarily left. Let's just say Jonathan K was an interesting choice for the Walrus to be the editor-in-chief of the Walrus in the first place. After a particularly controversial thing, he chose to depart. Sarah wrote a really good thing for Vice called Jonathan K is going to be just fine. I I'm not going to go through it blow by blow, <laughs> predicting out the timeline. If anything, it actually went a bit faster than you would predicted. You know, for example, you wrote, um, so this was in the spring of 2017, you wrote that by December 2017, he would announce a book about PC culture called Blocked, about uh, there'll be a wordier version of John Ronson's hit book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. But frankly, by that spring, he'd already done a National Post cover story But that was basically that, and they actually reused art that they'd previously commissioned for a review of John Ronson's book. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, There's like people, some person being, it's like a, a Hitchcock's the bird Twitter bird yeah. thing. It was, you know, it was a good piece of art, but the National Post sometimes reuses these things. I wonder, five years after you predicted he would be just fine, do you think that's borne out?
1: Yeah, you know, I think despite having no power at all, or social capital, I think he's surviving. He's doing just fine. He may not be important to many people anymore, but he's still out there
0: doing his thing. He may not be important to the same people. There are some people to whom he is important.
1: It says something when, to be relevant, you have to call something a children's show when it's not because you know certain people will be up in arms about their kids getting messages that colonialism is a bad thing. Kay
0: then tweeted a promotional clip from the show, adding, quote, actual segment from a new CBC children's show called Lido TV, in which, you think, quoted the release, host Lido Pimienta tackles themes ranging from feminism and privilege to colonialism. He didn't mean that as as a good thing.
1: You know, I think it just says a lot about the state of someone's career when that's how they get
0: other people going. I mean, I generally think he, I mean, he, didn't know he followed up like someone messaged me to say this might not even be a kid's show. But yeah, I I, mean, I, I will I...
1: just say, you know what? He shared the release. There was nowhere in that release where it said it was a kid's show. And it was me actually who quote cheated him and said, this is not mm. a kid's show. You are calling it a kid's show to court controversy. So I'll leave it at that. It is a great show. You should watch it. It was so fun to make. And. I think it's very important. And again, Lito Pimienta is a genius.
0: I hope there there are more puppets in the second season. There are puppets, but I wish there were more puppets. Yeah. (laughs) But who doesn't wish there were more puppets?
1: Everything needs more puppets. Yes.
0: We're going to stay on the topic of the Toronto Star, but sort of spin it around and look at the not editorial side of things and how that's going. So two years ago, the Toronto Star, which was formerly a public company and had been for several decades, was purchased by two Toronto businessmen. Paul Rivette and Jordan Batov. Neither of them had any real newspaper experience. Both are from wealthy families involved in the sorts of things that the really wealthy families do. And Batov is more of like a liberal-slash-conservative guy, and Rivette is more more traditionally conservative-conservative, and as was evidenced at the time by their respective uh, political donation records. The Toronto Star, uh, you know, has typically been a— capital L liberal paper, a Mm -hmm. centrist, a centrish or maybe a leftish thing. And there was a bit of a thing about, you know, is the paper going to be more conservative or whatever? I don't think there's any real evidence of that. But in terms of how that was going, well, because it's no longer a public company, we don't really get reports. We don't get quarterly Mm -hmm. statements. We don't get to find out how much the executives are making. But we suddenly got a whole lot of insight into what was happening when the Globe and Mail broke a story at the end of September. So it turns out that at the beginning of September, Paul Revet, or one of his companies technically, sued Jordan Batov, Torstar, and a bunch of other associated entities in order to dissolve their partnership. Uh, they'd formed a company between them to buy the star called Nordstar. It's based in Toronto but registered in Manitoba for reasons that a corporate lawyer could probably explain. Basically, this court application, which was basically for a court order dissolving the partnership, outlined what they described as sort of the, the breakdown of their relationship, how it led to a sort of irreconcilable differences. It was really entertaining and really fascinating. And I can only imagine how excited the Globe reporter must have been when he laid eyes on this in the first place. Obviously, all the allegations are unproven. And initially, Batov didn't have a statement in response. So my reading was that basically is that Ravette was suing Batov because Batov refused to make certain cuts. And then things in their relationship spun out from there. To quote from the application, as part of the ongoing effort to ensure the Toronto Star's long-term viability in a challenging market, Revett spearheaded various initiatives to bring TorStar, the Toronto Star, and Metroland Media Group's costs into line with those of other comparable news organizations and to modernize their operation. For example, 2022 has decided that two of the companies, the Toronto Star and Metroland, which publishes all the non-Toronto Star papers, so mostly community papers, they decided they would couple their balance sheets in an effort to streamline operations and cut unnecessary overhead costs. Uh, These decisions, it alleges, were agreed to by both Rivett and Batov and in coordination with management. But despite agreeing to these changes, Rivett alleges that Batov obstructed progress by refusing to make the necessary and agreed-to plans for those areas of the Toronto Star's business over which he was responsible as publisher. In particular, he refused and failed to make the required changes with respect to unnecessary corporate overhead costs. He then began to object to the changes, etc., etc. Basically, it sounds like there were certain cuts that he had allegedly agreed to make and then decided not to make. And then it basically... Unraveled on a whole chain of events, but including that, like Rivet being, you know, as unhappy that Batov, who is appointed also, by the way, the Toronto Star's publisher, is sort of having almost too much fun in that role. What he claimed is that Batov has repeatedly prioritized his role as publisher and has disregarded his responsibilities as a director, officer, and fiduciary of the entire Torstar and Nordstar enterprise to take steps to ensure the company's long term viability. And in doing so, that he is ignored, Nordstar's agreed to prime objective that Nordstar's business be carried out in common with a view to profit. In other words, he's unhappy with Batov for putting the paper ahead of profits.
1: Ugh.
0: But Tov, for his part, is happy to basically confirm this. Going through the public relations firm Navigator, he offered a statement to various news outlets that the preferred playbook of some investors to cut costs to the bone, strip the product, bare, and shrink newsrooms to extract short-term benefits for shareholders. The approach favored by those of us who believe in the vital role of the media in a strong and vibrant society is to build product centered on the trusted journalism that readers demand. So, all of which is to say... Are you enjoying this drama, Sarah? Am I enjoying it? Maybe enjoy is not the right word. Are you fascinated, intrigued, fixated?
1: I am because, you know, I do think the Toronto Star, you know, it's something that represents a lot of things to a lot of people. I mean, it's something I definitely read Mm -hmm. and I really love a lot of the writers there and everything. I feel like it's like the last thing a lot of people are kind of holding on to Mm -hmm. as far as Canadian media and newspapers go, where it's like... If something happens to the Star, I'm kind of wondering, like, well, is that it? Like, like, yeah, (laughs)
0: no, that's uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, I feel increasingly in recent years. I mean, especially as the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Sun have retreated from the civic beats in large part, yeah, and the Star, especially under the former editor Irene Gentle, really doubled down on them on courts, on City Hall, on transportation, and all on school boards and all of this sort of coverage. Mm It feels like the city would kind of not that the city already kinda of, Toronto feel already kind of feels like it's falling apart, but it really feels like it would crumble if it were not for the Toronto Star being like this one institution just holding up these certain things.
1: Yeah. And I feel like that that is kind of scary to me. I think it should be kind of freaking anyone out, even if you don't really agree with the star or it's not, you know, aligned with your politics mm. or whatever. You know, I, I get a lot of useful information from it and I don't know much about how to run a newspaper or how to make one profitable, but it feels very essential. And this idea that a lot of it could be cut out for profit or I do wonder how people who make money view media properties. And it's something that, as someone who works in media, I'm thinking about constantly Mm -hmm. because it is a very slow roll. You know, you don't invest in a newspaper or a publication or a website or a blog thinking it'll make you a ton of money. But it does feel like everyone kind of expects this profitable turnaround when they invest in a Mm -hmm. newspaper or something. And you're like, that's not how it works at all. And then it's kind of like, well, why invest in this at all? Why make it your problem if you kind of just want to shut it down the second you're like, uh, actually, nah.
0: I mean, I almost hesitate to buy into this this dichotomy too much, but they're certainly, in their respective statements, that very much playing it up is like one of them, yeah, does really want this to be first and foremost about profit, and the other one wants it to be about journalism. In practice, I doubt it's quite that simple, but they certainly seem to be happy to play these roles. And the way, what it looks like to me is that basically Paul Rivette, the more... To say business-minded of the two appears to be concerned that Batov will basically destroy the star through his, I guess I would say alleged chaotic energy, whereas Batov is sort of con- seems to be concerned that Revett will destroy the star through his desire to aggressively cut, and both things could very well be true at the same time. Yeah, I mean I find this deeply fascinating as an insight into a private business that we don't normally get in private companies, and into how powerful people operate and work and crucially interact with each other or don't interact with each other. But now the case is heading to mediation and arbitration. Unfortunately, it's not going to continue to play out in public in the courts, which I was looking forward to. I was hoping or figuring that at least as long as it's dragging through Mm -hmm. out to the courts, the status quo would probably mostly be maintained at the paper. That was kind of like the best hope. It would be unlikely that anyone would make sudden moves. Now that it's Going to arbitration and private mediation arbitration, I mean, it's hard to say how long things will hold. And it's unclear in whose hands the paper will be in just a year's time.
1: Yeah, it is scary to think about, especially thinking about journalism in Canada and people who are just at the beginning of their careers. Like from when I started, there was seemed to be a lot more. And that wasn't that long ago. No. And now there is far, far less going around. So I I don't know. It does freak me out a bit, especially because, you know, we really need local reporters and local journalists and people who have a very specific beat that are there to Mm -hmm. explain what's going on in a city. And I fear that's kind of, I mean, going away, you know, at least within North America in Mm -hmm. a very big way.
0: I mean, you made this point before on the show in some context, but like at this point, it feels very hard to conceive of how, institution on the scale of the Toronto Star would come into existence in Canada if it didn't already exist.
1: Oh, it absolutely wouldn't exist. It, yeah. couldn't, it, it couldn't exist now. It, no one could say, hey, I'm going to do this and this and pay people fairly and not mm-hmm. have people permalancing and have staff that, you know, have benefits and whatever, whatever. Like, that would never happen. It's impossible to imagine that happening.
0: Yeah. If you think about the large media entities that you know, briefly tried to challenge the legacy outlets for like hey, we can out of sort of out of nowhere with venture capital we can create a large news organization too, vice your former employer and BuzzFeed and see how that's turning out ten yeah. years later, which I mean still do very good work, but you know,
1: yeah, and the, I mean, people are stretched thin at these places, and you know when I worked at Vice. Five or so years ago before I, I was in that first round of layoffs. But I mean, like, to this day, I'm so astounded by how much talent there was there and how hard people worked and how it really seemed like for a moment when I was there before everything went to shit that like, oh, wow, like, this is really cool because there are so many people here who are, you know, really at the top of their game and so smart and so passionate about journalism and reporting. It's hard for these people to find stable employment. That kind of reporting takes time and support, and it can't be done unless people are properly compensated or have jobs or have supportive environments. So, I mean, the death of an institution like that, regardless of what you think about it, means people will not be able to do that.
0: I mean, an interesting thing with the Star is back in the late 40s, there was an attempt to put it in the hands of a charitable trust to – basically keep it as this institution working towards a broad public good. But the progressive conservative Ontario government of the day then changed the laws around charities in order to block that for the sort of spiteful political reasons you'd guess. But an interesting thing now is that in Canada for the past couple of years, newspapers themselves can become charities. Well, actually a nonprofit entity that's pretty much akin to a charity, and that can be essentially an institution for the public good. But there are only like eight of those now in Canada, most notably The Narwhal, uh, The Local, and uh, the biggest one, La Presse. But I mean, at this point, that's probably the best case scenario for The Star and probably for a lot of other publications too. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Toronto Star, uh, the paper that, you know, may have missteps here and there. I mean, who doesn't? But they do a lot of good work. And uh, I mean, it would be nice if fate didn't hang in the balance of the uh, personality clashes of a couple very wealthy individuals. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, John. Love having you here. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email me at jonathan@canadaland.com. At I'll read everything you send, like Jesse, and also like Jesse, I can't necessarily promise to reply, but I will certainly read things. Where can people find you, Sarah?
1: They can find me at... Gawker, where I'm a contributing writer, the Wondery Podcast Scamfluencers, which I co-host with Sachi Cole, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash kindahaggy. H-A-G-I.
0: This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capaccione. Our production coordinator is Andre Poo, theme musics by SoCalled, and syndications by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do and would like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts and miss out on my wonderful ad reads, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or, of course, you know, just go to our website, canadaland.com join.